The big question is, how does someone with MS actually improve their mobility, strength, energy, independence, the list goes on. My name is Dr. Gretchen Hawley, physical therapist and multiple sclerosis specialist. Welcome to the Missing Link Podcast. Tune in as I share the top strategies and exercises to help you gain control over your life with MS using research-driven insights and advice from top industry experts. Whether you're newly diagnosed or have had MS for over 30 years, whether you have relapsing MS or progressive MS, this podcast is for you. You're sure to feel empowered and inspired after each episode. Ready? Let's dive in. Hi guys, thank you so much for tuning in today. I am interviewing Dr. Kim Bretz. She is a naturopathic doctor of over 20 years with a special focus on gut health. On today's episode, Dr. Kim talks to us all about the different food groups and specific foods that affect our gut microbiome and what that means for MS symptoms. Dr. Kim, thanks so much for being here with us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to chat about this. Me too. We were talking a little bit off screen before I pressed record. And I feel like this is a topic that so many people are interested in and know very little about because it's just its own world. There's so much information. There is. And I think because there's so much information and because we're just at the tip of understanding this, there is so much misinformation as well. And things that we're kind of extrapolating that we've just been wrong about. So this is an area that's changing so fast. So I love talking about it. Awesome. Well, I've got a bunch of questions lined up for you, but if it's okay (laughs) with you, I'd love to ask you a random question from my interview deck to help our listeners get to know you a bit better. Is that okay? Perfect. We'll see how it goes. (laughs) All right. Let me shuffle over here. Your question is, When you have to study for a test, what is a proven successful method? Oh, that's easy for me. I have to write things down by hand. If I want to remember anything, I will just write it down. I do not have a photographic memory, but at that point, I generally can repeat anything back easily. So yeah, that's my very clear cut answer for me. Nice. That's so funny because I do have a photographic memory. So when I close my eyes, I have to literally picture what it looks like. I used to study in grad school with flashcards mm-hmm. and I would even picture what color the flashcard was, where it was that I wrote it on the flashcard. <laughs> yeah. I was a flashcard person too. Like once yeah. it was written down, I generally have it at that point, which is kind of great and got me through school. So yeah. Yeah. That's an awesome trait. Awesome. All right. So let's go ahead and dive in. So there's so many places that we could start with this conversation, but I guess I feel like a basic point to start with is that you mentioned eating foods and trying to eat healthy for your own human body, but also for your bacteria that we have almost as if it's two separate things. Can you explain that? Yeah. So, and it is kind of a weird thing to think about that if we're looking at us as human beings, that we have all our human cells and our tissues and all the different things, but then we have this estimated. And of course, this is a completely made up number because nobody has counted, but 40 trillion microbial cells that live in and on us. And technically that means cell for cell, we are more bacteria or microorganisms than we are human. 
And that's kind of a weird, creepy thought. Thankfully, they are way, way smaller. Their cells are way, way smaller than our humans are. So we look like our super cute human beings that we are. But it's more than that. So most of them live in our gut and they eat food. So they eat things that we provide them through our diet. And if we don't provide them with food, they are scavengers and they're going to find it themselves. But when they consume the food that they eat, they ferment it and they turn it into gases and chemicals. And those gases and chemicals then change how we function as human beings. So we've done this thing where we think about what nutrients does my liver need or what nutrients does my brain need or how do I make serotonin to help my mood or whatever it is that we're thinking about. But most of the time we actually had this idea that a good bacteria is a dead bacteria. So we didn't really care about them at all. And now we're starting to realize that not only do we need to care about them, what they eat matters. At the end of the day, a lot of the times things that are good for a healthy human being cell are also good for a bacterial cell, but they eat a huge amount of carbohydrates. That's their main diet. And when we look at a lot of the diets that people are doing, we actually may be starving them. And it turns out that's a huge problem. Wow. So are there certain types of carbohydrates that are better for the bacteria? Absolutely. So I remember when I was in school and I learned about the idea that we digest and absorb 90 to 95% of our food in our small intestine. And for me, two thoughts came up. One was, I really didn't care that much about the large intestine after that point, which is probably not a good take home point at all, because it turns out it matters a lot. But secondly, I was always trying to figure out how do we get that extra five to 10%? Should we give people enzymes? Should we juice? Like I want all hundred percent of my nutrition for my human cells. And because I graduated an exceptionally long time ago, we didn't know about the microbiota at that point. So we weren't thinking about the bacteria nutrition. So it just seemed like a waste to me. Then we started to learn that that five to 10% that we don't absorb is very deliberate. It is things that all of us as humans cannot completely break down. And it turns out these non-digestible, generally carbohydrates, are the food for the bacteria. So even when a mom is breastfeeding her child, she has a human milk oligosaccharide in there. It's something that we can't use as humans, but it's specifically food for bacteria like bifido infantis that we need to have those foods. So a lot of the things are going to be in your fruits, your vegetables, your nuts, some grains, but not heavily processed. So when I'm saying carbohydrates, it doesn't mean that we can go out and have garlic bread and spaghetti and follow it up with ice cream, it turns out, especially simple sugars or glucose, we absorb them really, really quickly in our upper gut. That's why for me, it feels like I eat pasta and eat ice cream and then I gain 20 pounds. My bacteria aren't getting any of it, but these more complex carbohydrates, we don't break them down completely and the bacteria use them. So those types of things are what they eat. Gotcha. And what about protein? I feel like this is a hot topic of plant-based protein versus animal-based protein. What's the difference there? And is there one that is better for our cells and our microbiome? 
So for our microbiome, the, they don't absorb a lot of protein or they don't use a lot of protein in general unless they're not getting enough carbohydrates. So they, they did this study where they had people either eating a fully plant-based diet or people eating a fully animal diet which obviously we, I mean, there's the occasional person doing it now as a microbiota person. It makes my heart hurt when I hear about that, but I know some people will disagree with me, but when they did that, we saw that within three days, the people who ate the all animal diet, that they moved their bacteria to a more pro-inflammatory group of bacteria that could consume more proteins. So it's not that it's impossible for that to happen. We do tend to shift more towards a unfavorable population. But if we're looking at animal protein versus plant protein, for the microbiota, what we've generally seen is there's there's not a lot that's saying we need to be vegan, we need to be vegetarian. But what it's saying is the more animal protein that we have, we then need to have more fiber to balance it out. It's sort of always that balance point that we're looking for. So I don't need anyone to be anything when I'm seeing my patients. You can come in and be vegan and you can come in. Well, I hope you're not a carnivore, quite honestly, but you can be eating meat and that's not going to be a problem in any sort of way. We just have to find the balance for you as a human being. And also for all your microbial friends, which I care about a whole lot. Yeah. Is there a way, and I want to get to fiber in a second too, but is there a way that we would know by ourselves without any testing how healthy and satisfied our bacteria, our microbiome is, or is it just based on how we're feeling? A lot of it is around how we're feeling. We have some microbiota testing that exists right now it's still not quite where we need it to be to give us really clear pictures of what is happening. If you remember, we're coming from a point where it's barely over 10 years right now that we were even able to understand that we have so many bacteria. Prior to that, we only really studied bacteria, you know, in those Petri dishes, those little red plates that they have a little swab on it and you can see something growing. Occasionally it shows up on the news and you're like, oh, that looks really creepy. That's how we used to understand bacteria. Now we have more molecular techniques, but this is such a new science. So we don't always know what it means when certain things are elevated or low. And we also don't always know, like there's certain things we think about constipation quite a lot. It certainly affects a lot of individuals, but we can see that there's certain organisms. They're not actually bacteria. They're kind of like almost bacteria called archaea. And there's a specific one called Methanobrevibacter smithii. And we see that more commonly in individuals who have constipation that's going on. And sometimes we'll think about it in a condition that is also not very well studied or defined at this point, but intestinal methanogen overgrowth. With that, we also see that for people who don't have enough of those bacteria, they're more likely to be obese. So too high and we could have constipation and too low and you could be obese. But we tend to think in these really static worlds as opposed to the fact that our microbiota is really dynamic. So we can't just think about one thing and we don't really have testing that has shown how we can understand that better. So we will see some individuals that when they eat carbohydrate rich diets, it makes them feel awful or they have irritable bowel syndrome or functional dyspepsia. It's going to give us an idea that the microbiota probably is out of balance. 
that might've started with a trauma. It might've started after an infection. So gastroenteritis or a food poisoning, or someone took an antibiotic. So those will be clues for us, but we often don't really at this point have quite the level of testing that we want. That makes sense. I became an MS specialist either seven or eight years ago now. And at that time, researchers were just starting to talk about the gut and microbiome Mm -hmm. and how that might persuade MS in any specific way. Mm -hmm. And it was like this brand new thought that was blowing everyone's minds. And that was only seven or eight years ago. So Exactly. And we see that in general with autoimmune conditions, but specifically with MS, with rheumatoid arthritis, IBD, or any of the Crohn's and colitis sort of things. We know that there's generally a dysbiosis that's going on, but we don't exactly know how much an effect that's playing and what to necessarily do with it, which unfortunately sometimes we'll get some individuals who just put out information that fix this and it's going to be the cure to everything. And that's really hard and really kind of makes me want to throat punch them a little bit, but we let it go. We move along and hopefully can just educate that we're getting there. And I think we will get more information in this area, but we're just not there yet. Yeah. And, you know, I do have several clients with MS who either have intense constipation or Mm -hmm. the opposite where their bowels are just loose and they can't really control it. And, you know, at first it was always thought of this is a symptom caused from the disease process of MS. Mm -hmm. But now from what you're saying, and from what I've heard, people are thinking that the biome, the gut actually might be playing a role as well, not just the disease process. Right. And we know the disease process, especially around constipation is one of the things that we have to consider functional dyspepsia. Sometimes people will have reflux, but it's often they're really full after meals or easily full, that bloated distension sort of feeling. We know that can come with the condition. We know the medications can cause some of those symptoms as well. But when we look and take those things out of the equation, we still see that the rates for IBS and constipation separate are higher than the average population in people with MS. Yeah. Okay. So let's get to fiber. So we talked about carbs and protein. What should we know about fiber and how does it play a role in all of this? Yeah. So fiber is one of my favorite and most hated topics because people really have gotten a lot of bad information about fiber. And what we've done historically is just said fiber is good. And that technically is a true statement that fiber is good for human beings. If we look at people who live in lower socioeconomic status countries or people who lived historically, we have had much more fiber in our diet most of the time. So it's it's helpful. We see it can be helpful for the gut and cholesterol and weight management, all these really good things. The problem is we've made fiber like one giant entity that everything is equal and that's not true. So it would kind of be like if I said, you know what, I've just found out did your blood work and you have iron deficiency, you know what we should do? We should give you some minerals. Yeah. Don't worry if it's calcium or selenium, that's probably fine for your iron like that. We would never think that, but that's what we've done with fiber is we've kind of made everything equal. So there are certain things that are really quickly used by the gut or by the gut bacteria specifically. So things like inulin, chicory root, fructooligosaccharides, You will often see these in packaged products that say will provide a very high level of fiber. 
and it will say giving you 40% of your daily fiber intake. And then you will get over half of people who consume these foods saying, okay, I'm so bloated, I'm going to explode. My gas has made me socially inappropriate. And now my bowel movements are all over the place. Those fibers don't work necessarily for everyone. And the fibers that are put into foods are often put into foods so that they can make a labeling claim, but they haven't been proven to actually be helpful for certain things. So when I'm thinking about fibers that I want for my patients, it's going to be in a lot of our fruits and vegetables and nuts and beans and things along those lines, but we always have to go low and slow with that. So that's my first sort of rule of thumb. And if you're finding that any fiber seems to be bothering you, really, we want to look at maybe there is something going on and you need to talk to someone about it because it's not that people are allergic to fiber or we just have to take them out. And then that's the solution. It's not really a great long-term health solution to do that. But then when we are looking at fibers, and I'm a little bit crazy with this because I think more about people's bowel movements than I think the regular population does, but it's almost like we need to have the right recipe to make a bowel movement. So when we look at the ingredients, certain fibers do certain things. So if things are rapidly fermented, where we can get a lot of bloating and gas, that's not going to bulk up our stool at all. It was fermented. It was used by the bacteria. That's not helpful at all. If it's something that is too finely ground up in some cases, it may add to the dry mass of stool and actually will just make it drier. So we'll often think about something like psyllium fiber is helpful for a lot of people, not for everyone, but because it is fermentable, but not all of it and not quickly. So we think about it as moderately fermentable. Bacteria is not going to use all of it. We're generally not going to get too bloated, especially if we start lower, but it's also something that it can draw in water, but it's viscous. So it can help form a gel. And those are some of the things that we want to think about that if someone has loose stool or someone has harder stool, we want something that's just kind of going to make it that right texture that you all know when you have that bowel movement and you're like, oh, look at that. That was so easy. And you're not doing the, oh, look, I'm wiping 18 times right now. Like it just, you're like, that was magic. I won the bowel movement lottery. That's kind of the fiber that we're thinking about that it can help do those sorts of things. Gotcha. That's yeah. I can understand with both of those situations. (laughs) As someone who talks about this all the time, when you get most patients, they're like, oh yeah, that was really good. And it's just one of those things where it's fantastic when those things are happening, especially when it's not your normal, but finding the right fibers, finding the right balance. Sometimes it is tricky, especially for people with gut issues or that dysbiosis in the microbiota. And it becomes scary because when it goes wrong, when it makes you feel worse, that sends signals to our brain that really heighten all the symptoms that we're having. And people really strongly pull back at that point. So can we assume that if we have a good consistency stool, that also means that our gut is happy and that we're feeding the right nutrients to our gut? Um, I think it's, it's leading in that direction. It might not be perfect with all of that, but it's certainly a better sign than the alternative. I don't know if we've ever really looked at it quite like that, but it does it certainly, I mean, I'm a naturopath. So if someone's telling me that they're having a healthy bowel movement once or twice a day, I'm feeling pretty happy about that in general. Yes. 
Yeah. Okay. That's good to keep in the back of our minds. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) When it comes to figuring out how this might look for each individual person, because as you've mentioned, every person's going to be a little bit different. Mm -hmm. How do we go about doing that? Would we reach out to you or you know, a naturopath, a nutritionist, what would that first step look like if someone is thinking, okay, clearly something's going on with my gut, my biome, my microbiome, I got to do something. What's the next step? What do they do? Yeah. So I think it is reaching out to someone having a diagnosis in the first place can be helpful. So if there's something that's really wrong, depending on where you are and what the regulations are, there's certain things that I can diagnose where I live in Canada. But there's certain things like inflammatory bowel disease that I couldn't order the colonoscopy to make sure that something going is something dangerous isn't going on. So we always want to make sure as much as we can that we're getting a little bit of a diagnosis, but seeing a naturopath, seeing a dietitian, there's a lot of individuals who are gut focused. I do usually encourage talking to people who are not completely generalized in this. Because then it's easy to get sort of the science that can get mixed up a little bit and have people go down rabbit holes where we're over eliminating food, we're over testing with things that we just don't have the evidence for at this point. And we can make things worse when we really do try to over manipulate the microbiota. When we do keep taking out more and more and more foods to feel better that actually can be something that really accelerates the rate of the symptom severity getting worse. And we really want to be cautious about that. It can be dangerous when we're playing around with this, when we don't know what we're doing. Yeah, that's super important. And so when someone does eliminate, even if it's just one thing, is there a timeline of how long they should wait before eliminating something else or adding it back in? So a lot of the time, and especially with things like irritable bowel syndrome, functional dyspepsia, those conditions now fall under the category of disorders of gut-brain interaction. So we used to call them functional disorders. Now we, instead of organics or organic, meaning we can do a test that will concretely say you have celiac disease, you have Crohn's disease with these IBS sort of conditions, we don't have a test that can prove it. So within this type of condition, we'll often do something like a low FODMAP diet where we're taking out a whole bunch of foods at once. So we basically take away the foods that feed the bacteria as a test to see if it makes you feel better. So we may take out a whole bunch of foods at once, but what is recommended is we do the trial for about two weeks, maybe up to four weeks. And at that point, we're starting a reintroduction already at that point. So it's not something, and I often have patients coming in that started it online or with another practitioner, and they just kept going because it made them feel better. And then they just kept going. And then if something was getting worse again, the idea often is, which I can see logically makes sense if the low FODMAP diet made me feel better. And then I ate this meal And it felt like it was perfect, but maybe the tomatoes in it was the problem. So now I'm going to take out the tomatoes and we keep doing this, pulling out more and more foods. And then they come in two years later and they've kind of been stuck on a program and continue to eliminate more and more foods. That's not great. So quick return, unless we're talking about true allergies, 
Obviously, I'm not going to suggest here, eat this peanut, I'll hold your EpiPen or my celiac patients. We're not going, I'm not suggesting there's any scenario where I'm bringing back gluten-based foods to the diet. But most of the things around these IBS, constipation, dyspepsia, reflux, we want to be bringing foods back pretty quickly because we generally don't think the foods are the problem with the caveat that in the context of food, I pretty much expect when I go out and eat half of a pizza and then decide that it's a good idea to have the brownie with my husband after that, I'm probably going to feel crappy. So that's, it's okay when we have these scenarios where we go outside of our norms and we don't feel great. But generally when we're bringing food back, we are not thinking the food is the problem. So treating it like it's the problem actually exacerbates things in a lot of cases. Gotcha. So if we use that idea of the food isn't the problem, what is the problem? Yeah. So we see that there's a lot of things that are changing. So a lot of the time we are seeing this dysbiosis or the imbalance between your good and bad bacteria is one of the big things. And we've studied this a lot through people after they've had infections or antibiotics or things along those lines. We also know that there's a major communication issue between the gut and the brain. So we see this visceral hypersensitivity. We can see motility changes that are kind of happening, but we don't think about most of these types of conditions as motility issues, like we would see when there's nerve damage that's happening or something along those lines. So those were a few things. We actually have a huge list, but a lot of the time, the microbiota which can affect that gut-brain axis and the gut-brain axis, which can then also affect the microbiota, those tend to be two really, really big pieces in this. Wow. So clearly the gut and brain connection or interaction is a huge component. So we'll definitely have to have you back on the podcast to talk more about that. But all of this is so helpful and just a unique way to look at things that makes it feel more digestible, no pun intended. (laughs) And I think it's going to be really, really helpful if our listeners do want to reach out to you or find you or look for any resources, what can we share with them? Yeah. So I am on Instagram mainly. I'm on Facebook as well. And my website has information for how people can reach out as well. Those are going to be the best places that can find me. I am still terrified of TikTok, but I actually do have an account that I occasionally get brave and get myself doing something, maybe more in the future. I love that. And I will put your Instagram and website in the show notes, maybe even your TikTok too. So So if you're listening, check out the show notes for those. But thank you so much for being here with us. I really appreciate all of your expertise and insights. It's just so valuable. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun. Thank you for listening to today's show. I am so grateful to have you as a listener. If you'd like extra resources, such as a video of one of my seated exercise classes, my favorite core exercises, and the opportunity to ask me your questions, head to missinglink.com forward slash insider. That link will be shared in the show notes along with links to my social media handles. If you loved this episode and think a friend or family member with MS would benefit from listening, please go ahead and text or email this podcast to them right now. Sharing this podcast will help me educate and empower as many MS warriors as possible. 
Thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Missing Link Podcast.